And here we are again with an English spoken podcast on what's on your mind. An amazing guest, Mona Akmal. She's the co-founder and CEO of Falcon.ai. It's a go-to-market sales and marketing SaaS company. She has built it since the last three years and she moved from Pakistan when she was 20 to Seattle, the US. It's an amazing, beautiful soul. Enjoy this hour with Mona. Welcome to What's On Your Mind with Peter Snowart. Every week a guest talks about his or her story and that story can inspire you to change your own. Here's Peter. So Mona, you're calling, you're dialing in from Seattle and I was uh, naming Seattle as for me it was Orwell Grunge started. I think about Soundgarden, Nirvana, mm -hmm. Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, Also a lot of serial killers. Um, also a lot of rain, um, many lakes and a lot of passive aggressive people. Okay. The reason you live in, uh, Seattle is because Falcon AI is based there because you're the co-founder CEO there because you weren't born there, right? Eh? You, yeah. you had a completely different background, eh? That's right. I grew up in Pakistan and mm -hmm. uh, I was hired by Microsoft as an engineer when I was uh, halfway through college. I was doing my mm -hmm. undergrad in computer science and they gave me a ticket to come to Seattle and be an engineer in the Windows team. And that was 23 years ago. So I moved here when I was 20 um, as an engineer and had, you know, total net wealth of $700, uh, not enough money to go back and, uh, you know, have lived here since then. And now this is home last 23 years. And Microsoft, I, Redmond, they're based in Redmond. I, I, so Redmond is very close to Seattle or oh, that's, or that's Seattle. Super close to Seattle. Ah, it's like okay. a 20 minute drive. Mm. Now, uh, a, a, a question which pops in my head is, um, was that then your dream becoming an engineer and now a co-founder, uh, CEO of a, of a of, of a very growing, exponentially growing uh, SaaS uh, company? Was it then your dream if you could do it all over again, Mona? You know, my dream was never software. Actually, uh, it was to create. I love creating things. I love working with really, really smart and humble people. And I've always believed in, you know, Renaissance people uh, that subscribe to a guild model where you join a guild and you perfect your craft with other people that care as much about their craft as you do. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's always been the driving force. Uh, software is a wonderful uh, palette to use to create beautiful things. And uh, that's why I think it aligns with my personality. And then I think why I moved here was autonomy. I just wanted to live a free life and explore uh, what I wanted to do in life without any inhibitions or uh, setbacks. And that's sort of been my journey to this point. And was your environment back home supporting you in um, taking that opportunity? Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, I imagine it's an assumption that I make when you're 20, you're all alone. You come from the plane with $700. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can imagine that you feel lonely or alone. Yes, absolutely. It felt incredibly scary and lonely. Uh, you know, my mom's been a huge supporter. She is a fiercely independent woman. Pakistan is not particularly a great place for very strong, independent women. Uh, especially ones that want to really explore the professional arena. And so my mom was very supportive of me moving here and also concerned because, you know, I had never lived away from home. And so to show up in a, in a place where I don't know anyone on the entire continent uh, and learn how to live as an adult uh, without any help was very daunting. Like I remember when I first landed here, it was when I was picking up my rental car that I realized that people in the U.S. drive on the wrong side of the road. Um, mm. Terrifying. I had ne never driven on a freeway before. It took me three and a half hours to get to my rental apartment. 
And uh, I ended up in the ER that very night. And the only reason I knew how to do it was because I'd watched lots of uh, crime shows when growing up and I knew what 911 was. Um, and so, you know, it was just, it was, it was a very lonely time. It was, I think more than that, a very scary time. Uh, but you know, all of those things just make you stronger. Um, and they make you build more confidence in yourself. So I'm very grateful for it. If, uh, if you, if you, uh, this, this conversation is going completely the other direction than I wanted, because I prepared lots of uh, uh, questions regarding the SaaS space, but we'll come to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. If you can, I ask you how young you are, Mona? Yeah, I'm 43. Ah, look, uh, you're a couple, you're four years younger than myself. Um, if we, if we would go back eh, and mm-hmm. I would uh, take a plane, I've never been to Seattle, I've been to New York, Las Vegas, uh, Houston, mm-hmm. um, uh, Washington, uh, Boston. If, if if I would take a plane and uh, I would meet you and we would hang out in Seattle, you would show me around. Um, I'm also a magician. Um, and um, we would go to, I don't know, a bar or something or have dinner. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the 20 year young Mona walks in. What would you give her in terms of advice? It can be professional. It can be private advice, uh, whatever. What would... What would be the first thing that she approached you and says, hi, Mona, looking great. Uh, what kind of advice can you give me? And I know you've been through everything and this, they are the lessons learned, but hypothetically speaking, what kind yes. of advice would you give her? Well, I mean, the first thing I would do is give her a big hug and uh, tell her how strong and brave uh, she is and uh, how life was going to be really wonderful. Because I think that when we are at least for me when I was younger, self-forgiveness and self-acceptance just wasn't a concept I was familiar with. Mm. And then I think the biggest piece of advice I would give to myself is let go of the shoulds in your life Mm -hmm. and the legacy that uh, you have been given. And all of us are given a legacy by our families and our conditioning while we're growing up on how you need to live your life. And instead, let your passion and let your heart drive, um, be in the driver's seat and take more risk because Mm -hmm. there really isn't a lot of risk in life. And you really find out who you are and what you're worth and achieving big things in life requires being able to take those risks. So just... Mm -hmm. Let go of the baggage and the legacy um, conditioning and let your heart guide the way. You'll be fine. Yeah. Great advice. I assume I've, I've worked for, I don't know, 30 years, 25 years plus in, in software startups in Europe mm-hmm. and uh, now in a scale-up. I can imagine, and at least it happened to me, um, You the if you look back, on your career, you as an engineer, then you grow to product marketing. And then now you're the co-founder, CEO of Falcon AI. And um, you led the company to a 10 million plus ARR um, in terms of revenue, which is amazing. I mean, um, and I saw, and it's linked also a little bit to a post that I saw of you a couple of days ago where you were invited to a dinner and there were all male people there. Yes. And my, there's there's two sides of my question. The first one is is it's it's attached to to the the statement you made about your heart, following your heart, because I really love that. It's mm-hmm. something that I only discovered like I don't know, ten years ago. I don't know, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, is the fact that in a when you're in that treadmill of ga- making business, creating business, you're going from zero million to your first customers, then you have a, then you have like I don't know a couple of hundred k ARR um, turnover in a year, and then to to ten million. I imagine, and I, I had that. There comes a point that you think that your ego is going to run the show, thinking that you are fantastic and everything you touches becomes gold. Yes. How do you keep your ego in check so that you are not falling asleep? of your success, Mona? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question. And 
I'll give you a three part answer. Part number one is exactly what you said, which is you have to be diligent in watching out for these behaviors because a lot of us are surprised by how much our personalities evolve and we're not aware of it because we're not actively guarding against it, right? Uh, we think we will never be that arrogant person who is insufferable and really difficult to be around and believes that all their success is attributable to them. Mm -hmm. So I would say part one is exactly what you said. Just be mindful and monitor for it because it's like, it's like, you know, how you get an annual physical exam because you want to monitor your health to make sure you're not thinking you are in good health, but you're actually not. Similarly, I think monitoring for how your personality is evolving uh, and whether you're letting success get to your head is important. Second is use people in your network that are uh, like my mother, my closest friends. They've known me since I was a kid. Uh, they know how to take me down seven or eight notches. And, uh, you know, their relationship with me is based on before I was my adult self, right? And so surrounding yourself with people that are humble, uh, people that know you well, and people that have the ability to challenge you is really, really important. And then third and last is, I think achievements in life, uh, to me, there are two reasons why you achieve things in life. One is because the achievement was the end goal. And I think that's where the arrogance comes in, right? Like if I was starting this company because I wanted to make a certain amount of money so I could have the house and the car that I want, then when I get the house and the car, um, that's the reason, right? To me, that mindset is much more prone to arrogance and ego uh, versus people that achieve simply because they want to get better. And once they achieve that thing, then it's about the next thing. And then it's about the next thing. So it's never actually about any achievement. It's about progress in your skills and your craft. Uh, for me, it's very much about that. Uh, I want to look back every year and say, I became a better person in key ways. And that's what a successful year looks like. And that's not really an arrogant position because you know you're never done. Mm. It's an ongoing yep. journey. Yep. This, yeah, the destination is the journey. Now, um, I assume that Falcom.ai is uh, VC funded? Yes, we yep. are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I know that world pretty well. So this means also that in the last years, there was a lot of cash um, especially in SaaS space. Mm -hmm. And I read an, a report, um, I think two weeks ago, is that the so-called SaaS era is over. Mm -hmm. And um, I want your opinion on that. And one of the, the opinions stated in that is, is that, and I think it's true, is that um, when I started in 2000 working for a startup, um, it was not hip a startup. I mean... Yeah. Uh, Right now, it's more rock star uh, to, to work in a startup mm -hmm. than actually to play guitar and be a rock star. Uh, <laughs> although Taylor Swift is responsible for making sure there are more electric guitars and acoustic guitars sold to female guitar players than male players. But that's something else. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the fact is, so there is lot of, lots of money um, in the VC world. So they're spreading lots of money. And of course, a lot of these male leaders with big egos, they, they create companies and they are so focused on leads, leads, leads and getting a customer in. They don't care about the, the, the fact that the customer is happy or is it creating value, business value or impact. Mm -hmm. And so those typical companies are going to be, I wouldn't say dead, mm -hmm. but it will be very tough for them compared to companies, I assume, like yours, mm -hmm. whose intention is really to create impact for their mm -hmm. customers and driving, eh? because you're, you're working in the marketing and sales space or the GTM space. GTM is not a term which is really resonating in Europe, Europe yet. We're still talking about revenue operation, but that's another thing. So um, how, how, what, what's your opinion on that, uh, on the fact so that I said that, yeah, that the, the SaaS companies, because of... The, the 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 recession mm -hmm. that is um 
yeah, that it's that it's going to that only companies who are relevant for their customers creating impact that are going to be sustainable and the rest will yeah crumble down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's why when the market meltdown started to happen, I was pretty happy. Um, and we raised uh, our Series A uh, right in the middle of the market meltdown. And we were able to raise it because what happened over the last three years uh, was a total scam, right? It was venture capitalists as scammers and it was founders as scammers. Uh, no one was interested in generating value, building durable businesses, solving real problems. It was a hype cycle that actually venture capitalists made a lot of money from and a lot of founders made a lot of money from. And then they dumped their horrible companies with bad unit economics to the public markets. And as we know, those companies have been shaken down because uh, public markets simply don't work on that level of hype and uh, promise about the future, uh, which to me is actually, you know, a lot of founders are just, uh, you know, uh, it, a lot of uh, people that have been attracted to entrepreneurship in the last five years in tech um, are quick fix, um, shortcut oriented, self-centric, narcissistic, cult leader type persona, right? Where you can talk a big game, but, and, and you can scam people with charm, but you don't really have the substance or the desire, honestly, to build a real big business. So I'm personally very excited about this course correction that's happened because it will result in a cleanup, a spring cleaning in the, the founder community and in the tech community. I don't personally think SaaS itself is dead. SaaS is simply a way to deliver software mm. yeah. to customers and a business model on how a business can make money from that service being provided. And there are many examples of very successful SaaS companies uh, that are, you know, uh, huge participants in the public markets and uh, impactful to U.S. economy, to the world economy. So I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that founders that were drawn to the game because they are creators, they are inventors, they want to have impact, they want to leave a legacy will do really well. Um, and founders that were attracted to the hype and the occasional article in TechCrunch and uh, the massive Twitter following are going to fizzle out and go do something else and scam someone else. Yeah, that's true. The, the SaaS is just a, just a, the, the, the model of the way software is being uh, licensed to the metrics instead of perpetualizing. So it, it doesn't matter, but I fully agree. Mm, happy to hear that. Um, now, why did you choose when you started co-founded the company the the sales and marketing space why was that for you was that something you saw an opportunity in uh, in microsoft or where did you yeah find that uh niche uh, niche it's not a niche but uh, that uh, that that hole in the market yeah so actually when we started the company and a lot of founders don't talk about this until they are you know massively successful because failure even though we talk about how important failure is, people don't share their failure stories unless they're wildly successful. Um, we started the company as an augmented analytics uh, solution. And our thesis was that reports and dashboards are just helping you report on the state of your business. They're not actually helping you run your business better or more efficiently. Right. You and I sitting and looking at a pretty chart uh, that shows us a revenue number is not us using that information to run our business. It's just reporting on the business. And we wanted to right size that. And that came from actually my time at Zulily, which was a massive online retailer with very low margins. Right. Um, where we delivered a highly personalized customer experience for seven million customers every day. And zero humans were involved because we had taken all our customer data and operationalized it into beautiful communication with our customers where they felt like they were talking to a person, but there was no human being involved, right? That's to me the magic of using data to run your business instead of just 
making a dashboard and reporting on the business. So we started with that as our core thesis. Um, the first year we built an amazing product. We had two great customers and then we just tanked. We could not sell our product and for almost seven months had a huge dry spell because our very customers we were selling to BI leaders, uh, business intelligence leaders. When they would look at our product, the first words out of their mouths were, well, this automates me out of a job. And guess what people don't like buying? They don't like buying software that makes them feel irrelevant, right? And so first we you know, took that ideological stance. Why can't we change the world? Why is the world so unfair? Why can't people be as you know, motivated by the upside as we are? And, you know, Ray Dalio talks about how uh, in order to succeed, you first have to accept reality for what it is, not what you want it to be. Right. And so when we accepted that this is the state of the world and there's no way we're going to win this argument, we pivoted and we said, OK, so if we took the, the IP that we've built and applied it to a data set and a problem space that is much more scoped down and sold to a business leader instead of a BI leader. Because business leaders are held accountable to their numbers, right? They will use any tool to hit those numbers. Um, that's when we went through the journey and realized that actually the CRO is the most motivated person. They have a lot of data that they're sitting on top of, and they are stuck in the early 2000s of using the you know, little Salesforce dashboard to report on the business. And so that's really where we scoped down and built Falcon 2.0 uh, focused on go to market because we found that those were the leaders that had the strongest appetite for operationalizing data because their jobs depend on it. If a CRO does not hit their numbers a few quarters in a row, they are no longer at that company. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's been the, the journey so far. And um, if you could redo it again, can I then say that um... instead of immediate then creating the product then selling it that you first would re just turn it around and do a kind of a market validation and then finalizing the product if you could redo it again so actually i'd done a bunch of market validation like i uh, researched the idea of falcon 1.0 for a year before i pulled the trigger and uh, we had some pilot customers and all of that Here's the thing, though, uh, and I think a lot of people do a better job of market research than I do. One, I chose to listen to the research that confirmed my opinions instead of what, what was actually being said. And a lot of founders, when they get very emotionally invested in an idea, because they're creators, they're builders, they get in. Is there a baby? Yeah? Right. Is there a baby? It's their baby. And, and so they will tune out people that are saying things subtly, right? That's another thing. When you're doing market research, a lot of people are trying to make you happy. They're not actually trying to tell you the truth. Um, and so understanding how to do good market research was a big learning. I wish I could go back and do it differently then. Um, the last thing I'll say is with market research, you never re really get to a point of truth until you ask someone to pay you money because yeah. everyone says they're willing to try something new and they're so excited and how awesome is this idea. Then when you say, okay, great, write a check for 20 grand or 30 grand, that's when you know the real uh, research. Um, right. And so I think in, in, in hindsight, maybe what the less, the big lesson I would say is, Whatever path you think you're going to take to get the product market fit, I guarantee you that is not how you will get the product market fit. So mm -hmm. having the flexibility in your personality to know that you've made a plan and you're going to change this plan every month until you get the product market fit and you just have to be open and flexible. There's no way to prevent that pain. You just have to. No, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's a part of the process. So just power through it, right? Yeah, it's uh, very recognizable. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, um, if you 
if you you want to go to market space, sales and marketing, CROs, I get it because actually that's where's the money. I mean, they want to create new revenue streams. Mm -hmm. They want to have sales rep and marketing reps who are, um, yeah, who are successful, who bring in new new customers. Yes. How do you? I'm going to start again with with Falcon AI, mm -hmm. which. In, in your conversation, I assume you did the first customers yourself. Yes. What was then the first person you hired? You hired a marketing person, growth hacker slash uh, growth hacker marketing person, or did you hire a salesperson and you educated that salesperson? What did you hire? Or did you hire them at the same time and why? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say the answer I'm about to give you, I wish I had done things differently. So I will tell you what I did and I'll tell you what I should have done. Um, so what I did was we didn't hire anyone in marketing up until a few months ago. So we didn't hire for marketing at all, right? Huge mistake. Should have done that at least 18 months prior to when we did. Um, and that's because we're a very engineering centric company. So our view was much more sort of we work directly with customers and like we love our customers. They love us, but who cares about marketing? So that was a big mistake. Um, with sales, we actually hired a person who had, who had sales management experience and also had individual AE experience and was very much about getting to the first 10 customers. That was their superpower, right? Uh, because the first 10 customers, you're not actually getting them uh, for your product. You're getting them uh, because they either have a prior relationship with you or um, you are able to take them on a journey of your vision instead of what you will deliver to them tomorrow, right? And so this person was ideal for that. And uh, we worked very closely together to get to our first 10 customers. Um, but this person was not the person that could build the sales playbook to say, okay, how do you get from 10 people to 100 people? For instance, their superpower was not hiring great people. It was not building sales playbooks. It was not building repeatable processes and so on, right? And so... Um, the next hire that we made in sales was a head of sales who has experience with seven or eight different startups and is much more about hiring great people, coaching great people, building sales playbooks, executing flawlessly on sales. And think of me as their AE and they are using my brain to write the playbook test it with a couple of customers and then they are ready to bring on real AEs to scale the process, right? So that's been our approach on sales, which I'm happy about. With marketing, our, like I said, we didn't hire a marketer for the first two and a half years. We've been around for three years and we have not had anyone in marketing for a while. We, we hired a content marketing person actually a while mm -hmm. back. Uh, they helped us put together our website. Um, but in hindsight, I think product marketing should be first. Um, content marketing should be second. And demand gen should be third. And customer lifecycle marketing and community building, uh, depending on your business, can either be second or fourth. Uh, my motivation here is for a complex product like ours, getting messaging right is really, really important. Also, when you are operating in a crowded space like sales and marketing technology, uh, being able to figure out your unique message that cuts through the noise is super important. Content can then be the supplement to that, right? So a positioning and a messaging framework and a product marketing um, muscle is a prerequisite in my opinion to then yep. inform what kind of content you're going to build and how you will generate demand. Yeah, I fully yeah. agree because to be very direct and a little bit raw is that uh, in that crowded space of in mm -hmm. a crowded space in a red ocean, a lot of content is the same Yes, and sounds the same and yes. it's, and as, 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 because I also looked at your website and yes. um, yeah, I'm a sales director. So I'm like, mm, this is interesting. Yes. And 
it needs to grab my attention within a couple of seconds and needs yeah. to be very clear how can this solution mm-hmm. make my life easier yes is it going to speed up reps is it going to automate sales books or help yes. me in my reporting so i don't have to manually do things in crms with excel and whatever yes and um so i fully agree is that that positioning yes is so crucial positioning also means what is the value that you're bringing for whom and we who is the ideal target client or customer profile whatever you want to call it yes and why is the reason that they want to buy and especially why it, what is the pain yes. um what is the because there is all and it's a little bit tied to the, the 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 product fit is the you have products and i've sold products which are extremely technologically superb yes at the same time they were nice to have but yes. never needed to have yes. and if you don't find that need to have mm-hmm. you're going to be evangelizing evangelizing for the rest of your life and everybody yes. thinks you're amazing Yep. But never, nobody's going to sign that order. That's right. That's and exactly that's right. why that's why a lot of people go too fast to the content marketing part, and then they. But you first, you need that positioning, and then if you can, if you find that, and you have validated that, and then yes. you can put a content, then your marketing is going to inject great quality leads for your sales. Yes, hundred percent, hundred percent agree. But and, you know, these are the types of learnings that uh, I wish there were more forums for it. And you you realize this, how expensive these mistakes can be. And yeah, uh, that's why so much of startup success is, did you learn the lesson you needed to learn fast enough that you had time to actually apply the learnings? And we're very lucky in that regard. But Mona, I think to be quite honest is that... Um... You, you know all the SaaS models, eh? you know the, what is it, the predictable revenue model. Eh? It's very easily explained in a book. And, um, but in theory, these things are great in a certain period of time, in a certain market wave, because I really do think that certain companies serve a certain wave yes. um, in a particular market. And it's too easy to generalize those models and to think if I do that, that the the, the bucket of gold will be there for us. I think it's too easy. And the only reason you can discover it is by, sorry for the words, but I can use it because you live in Seattle and it's a rock scene. You can fuck it up. You fail. And and then the, the, the biggest thing that you can do is to take the emotion out of it, to learn the lesson, to pivot. Yes. And, 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 and take, the appropriate action and don't stay too long in that kind of situation. So Absolutely. that's the, I, one of the, one of the things that I learned recently, eh, recently is that I honestly, as a sales rep, I thought marketing was like content and blah, 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 and, and <laughs> white papers and research. And I was like, you, I don't, your, your leads are not good enough. I'm a biz dev. I will take care of my yes. own needs. Yes. But the thing I learned, if, I work together with great digital marketeers. Yes. They can literally, yeah, instead of hiring an army of extra sales, they can literally speed up the business in an exponential way. And if you get that right, that marketing sales, and it's really about like you and me working together in the same room, having the same goal with our own expertise and getting our egos out of the door and thinking, how can we, how can we, make sure that our objectives are aligned and yes. it's not about you and me and leads and you know how can we make this thing happen and to be absolutely. sometimes kill our own darlings yes absolutely and you know that's actually i'm so happy to hear you say that because um one of the things that we strongly believe is you have you'll see a lot of intelligence tools in the market but you don't see one intelligence tool that serves the entire go-to-market discipline. The tools actually are causing more silos to happen as opposed to less, right? Marketing has their version of the truth and that lives in a completely different place and sales has no visibility into that. Um, Sales has their own tools and their own visibility and marketing doesn't have access to that. 
let's not even talk about account management and customer success, even though, you know, where you and I started the conversation, which is it's all about net revenue retention. It's not just about bringing new logos in. It's also about retaining them, right? Revenue protection. How can you protect your revenue if you as a sales team or a marketing team don't even know what the health of these accounts is and how they're using your product, right? Um, but this is where we believe that uh, unifying data and bringing a tool that is for the entire go-to-market function, marketing, sales, sales development, account management, customer success, uh, until you unify that, the silos will just continue to get deeper. And I think this is going to be a huge differentiator between SaaS companies that win. They will put their egos aside and they'll be able to work as one team. And SaaS companies that lose will spend more time fighting with each other between mm -hmm. marketing and sales than fighting their common enemies outside, yeah. you know? And, there, and there's also another thing, Mona, I'm going to be direct, so forgive me. Yes. Is that's what I discovered. And, and I'm, not, I'm not going to blame marketers for that. I also look at the sales peers. So mm -hmm. I look both of them is that like you worked at Microsoft, you saw the whole Azure thing coming up together with Amazon, AWS and the, and the GCP, the Google, mm -hmm. is that 20 years ago, everything was done on-prem and then suddenly the cloud was there. Yes. And then every, every CIO, CTO was like, oh, the, the, the cloud is the golden ticket to digital transformation or whatever word they want to call it. Mm -hmm. But they have... What I believe I've forgotten is that they have used what is called a means to yes. reach a certain objective. They have used cloud and, and call it an objective. Yes. And it's the same thing which I see happening in sales and marketing is that sales and marketing needs to work together like mm -hmm. one team. And they should think and see these kind of tools that you are putting into the market as a chamber who is going to exponentially, a loudspeaker, who is going to amplify what they have, they yes. bring to the world yes. and amplify that. Yes. But a lot of them, I think, and it's due to also some companies in the, in the sales and marketing space, mm. especially in the sales outbound automation space, they sell it like some kind of gold overnight success yes. um, that will deliver you instantly 1 million leads that sure. will convert you. And they, they think if they put everything, all their um, money, that that gold tool is going to solve it. But they forget that they have to implement that tool and use that tool together with the knowledge they have. Mm -hmm. Completely. And I mean, that's an interesting thing you bring up. Tools are not meant to be a replacement for human effort. And, uh, you know, they're supposed to amplify human effort, like you said. A lot of times, and I experienced this um, working with many customers, their sense of urgency after they buy a tool to get value out of it is so low. It's really disappointing because um, it's a little bit, you know, I remember when I was at Microsoft, I saw a lot of, uh, uh, there was a word for it, middle-aged men in Lycra, a lot of sort of mid to senior Microsoft men who love biking. They are always wearing Lycra and they are middle-aged. So we used to call them mammals. Uh, a lot of mammals, middle-aged men in Lycra at uh, Microsoft used to buy very expensive photography uh, gear. Lenses worth tens of thousands of dollars, the latest camera. You could put them in front of a lion in the Serengeti and they could not take a good picture because the craft wasn't there, the work wasn't there, the ethic wasn't there. A tool is just a tool. At the end of the day, it's the human operator that has to decide what they're going to do with it. Um, and we do see a lot of people that are just greedy about buying tools. It's con tool consumerism as opposed to using tools to actually do stuff. Uh, that actually is also a huge problem in SaaS, right? Where um, there is a responsibility on us as well. When we are selling to prospects, we should be disqualifying prospects that are trying to buy tools 
to solve no important need, right? If they can't clarify or articulate to you exactly what problem they're trying to solve, what are the odds that you'll be able to make them successful as a customer once they've signed that contract? It might make your investors happy that mm. quarter that you hit your number. But a year from now, you would have wasted a ton of time trying to make this customer successful, but the customer never really had a problem or a desire to be successful in the way that you can help them. So making the fact that, for instance, you have um, earned 100K in, in, in getting the deal in, but you have made 300K in discussing with the customer because he's not happy and frustrated, etc. And of course, brand damage. And then I'm like, wouldn't it be easier to say, dear customer, dear prospect, I mean, your case is not strong enough, we think. And that's why yes. I want to have a dialogue with you. Yes. Um, this and this and this. Won't you agree? That's why we think it's not a good idea to, to move forward. Yes. That's the advice we're going to give. And for a lot of people, it's it's very strange to do that. But I fully, fully agree. And the, the cool thing is it will resonate it will amplify through his network or her network. Yes. Um, because it's exactly what you're saying. But I understand that eh? there are targets. You have sales. There are sales managers or CROs pushing. Then you have VCs who mm -hmm. want us also to see the numbers, especially when it's big logos or big uh, logos who have a, a very important uh, brand name. Yes. So I fully agree. Fully agree. Great, great to hear that from you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Because it's like you said, and I'm going to tie back again to our conversation in the beginning, mm -hmm. we're on a journey and you will stay on the journey. It's not because you hit your numbers this quarter. I mean, you're running a marathon next quarter, the quarter after that next year, mm -hmm. you have to, the, 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 the counter is at, I wouldn't say at zero. I mean, it's a SaaS uh, model, but again, I mean, the new, new logos need to be uh, added. And of course, the churn needs to be yeah, minimized to as low as possible to keep the existing customers happy. That's exactly right. And, you know, that's why a lot of investors are now preaching the gospel of net revenue retention as the new metric, as opposed to uh, new logo growth, right? Uh, that has not been the mantra in boardrooms the last five years, but now it is. It's all about NRR, which is as much about uh, uh, revenue protection, churn prevention, as it is about expansion, as it is about new, uh, new business revenue. Yeah, because also yeah, the the investment for new businesses is five times or something to 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 protect the existing uh, revenue. Yes. Um, is it easy to find good people, Mona, and in sales, marketing, developers, whatever? I mean, uh, or do you see with with the uh, with the, with the SaaS, I wouldn't say decline, it's not decline, but, and the whole quite quitting and uh, I don't know, I, I have no absolutely idea. I mean, I read a lot of stuff on the internet, but I don't know if it's true in the US. So do you find yes. good people? Can you attract great people, still great people? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we've, uh, I think uh, the answer will vary wildly depending on the network of the founders and uh, the communities that they have already invested in, right? So for instance, we have never had a problem hiring an engineer, a data scientist or a product manager. That's because we seeded the company with the best people that everyone would want to work with. And, you know, once you seed uh, your company with the right people or the type of people that you want at your company, like the first five people at Falcon, collectively, we had all worked in the industry 20 plus years. We had all worked at Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, um, Dropbox, uh, and everyone was super senior and wanted to do an individual contributor role. So no management, no managers, no BS, no red tape, just good, high quality work and a lot of fantastic people to learn from and learn with. Uh, because of that, uh, we attract incredible engineering and science talent to Falcon. We have never had a problem there. Uh, sales and marketing is a completely different ballgame because none of us, the original people, have a strong network. 
And as you know, with sales especially, uh, every sales rep interviews super well. It's their job, right? Uh, if, if there's anything they're great at, it's that first meeting. And so uh, it took us a while. And that's where we have relied on our network to do interviews with us. So for instance, I have a few advisors um, from prior roles who are phenomenal sales leaders themselves, have been in sales and have been in marketing. We have them on our interview loops. We share resumes with them to get their thoughts on how to suss out a good candidate versus a fluff resume, right? So mm -hmm. we've had to really learn and build our intuition in these disciplines because it was not our core. I've hired hundreds of engineers and product managers, so I can, I know how to hire for them. Um, sales reps, I had never hired a sales rep before Falcon. And so relying on our network to vet candidates and teach us how to vet candidates has been really important. I will say uh, companies that have a big mission, a big market, are well-funded and have authentic leadership uh, will always be able to attract good talent. Uh, I, I never lost sleep on that. You, um, of course, we haven't met physically. It's the first time we encounter. Mm. I feel that we share the same values. If, if I hear you talking, mm -hmm. for me, um, still as a sales leader, I it's also challenging to hire great salespeople. I can assure you that mm. one of the things for me which is very important is 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 the values. I want to know the yeah. values. Mm -hmm. How how do you how do you bring that in the mix? Because the idea of bringing somebody else, and I also do that, eh, to have a, an independent person check out that person. It can be even an, a non sales it can be somebody from product marketing uh, project management it can be somebody from i don't know uh from strategy mm -hmm. somebody who has nothing to do with sales and ask do you want to work with him or her mm -hmm. and how do you for yourself bring values in that even in your intuition you're like everything that person says is correct on paper but there is something off here mm -hmm. And the, the thing that I learned, and I also heard that from a, a VC, he, he told me, I hired a partner. And on paper, on theory, everything was perfect. But in my intuition, and he said, I'm a bold, of bold, uh, middle-aged man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so intuition and all that thing is for me too, too, too fluffy. But Peter, mm -hmm. I have to agree that my intuition was off on that person. Mm -hmm. And I better listened to my intuition. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Does that resonate with you or? Um, I do and I don't because there's actually at some level, no difference between bias and intuition, right? Um, there is a massive amount of um, research that suggests that people that talk even in a certain tone or a certain voice uh, how deep their voice is, how much they move, how much they look like us actually is a great way for, it's how a lot of people will um, uh, realize whether this is a person they trust or they don't trust, right? Because things that are unfamiliar innately feel untrustworthy to the reptilian brain. Uh, at the same time, I think uh Hiring for operating principles is really, really important because uh, I don't call it values. I call it operating principles because it is how you choose to behave. For instance, one of our operating principles is get better every day. Mm -hmm. We actually have interview questions that we ask across all candidates that are behavioral questions to see in this person's life, what is their mindset towards learning? So we'll talk about, for instance, what was an experience where you failed catastrophically? Um, what did you learn from that? How did you evolve your experience? What is a project where you applied the learning? If it's a sales rep, you are looking at Walk me through the deal that you're most proud of. If the rep uh, answers a deal that has the largest contract value, then clearly they're not a learning-oriented person. 
if they say, oh, it was a deal that was super complex and it took this wrong turn and that pivot and there was a competitor and a last minute change of plans and I learned how to do this and I learned how to do that and I asked this person for help and then I reached out to this person in my network. Now you've got someone who has a growth mindset, right? Um, Similarly, I like to ask people, what do you do? Describe to me your perfect day. If their perfect day comprises no creative uh, or learning-oriented activity, they're just not motivated by learning, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for people that have a lot of uh, hobbies, that like to build things, that read books, that listen to stuff, that don't just consume content, but are also actively applying that, right? So Mm -hmm. their hobbies have some application. Someone that reads 120 books a year, but doesn't do anything with that, I'm not interested in. Someone Mm -hmm. that reads five books a year, but is working on getting a blog set up or is working on, um, you know, uh, learning how to paint. It doesn't have anything to do with sales, but it shows you a mindset. Someone whose brain is always looking for new things to learn. So I would say um, interviewing uh, in a, as unbiased way as possible for operating principles is critical. It's essential. Um, Assuming that people are who they are, because I've seen a lot of people who were friends at Microsoft and they worked a certain way and then they joined Amazon and they started working a different way because human beings have a lot of adaptability to them, right? Um, so I think hiring for operating principles doesn't just stop Mm -hmm. at that. It then translates into how are you treating them once they walk in the door? For instance, if we really, really focus on punctuality as a team, because we say that to show up on time is to respect someone else's time. Great. Now, if you join Falcon and uh, your first week I am late or I cancel my one-on-one with you five minutes after it starts, what have I told you with my behavior? Mm. That we don't actually operate by that operating principle at all because I am exhibiting to you the opposite behavior, right? So then the operating principles get enforced by the behaviors that you encourage or discourage intuitively within an organization. Right. Yeah. Um, I fully agree. You know, the the only thing, if and maybe that's US Europe thing, is that I also worked for an IBM, which is like Microsoft and, and Amazon, a big corporate. Yes. People who have worked there five years, ten years plus, etc. I'm going to challenge them even harder. Yes. Than people who have it, uh, a more do-it-yourself. Uh, imagine Mona she's 20 Mm, she she doesn't have that big name behind Mm -hmm. um, her after her name but she has passion she has grit she has Mm -hmm. that determination she has that fire burning Mm -hmm. I will take her over somebody who has been able to work in a ecosystem uh, especially doing big deals, because if somebody tells me I've I've closed a 65 million U- uh, US or Euro deal, I mean, I'm like, sorry, you did not win that deal by yourself. Mm-hmm. If you claim that you did it yourself, I mean, bullshit. I know sales reps who have closed deals of 10K, which much were much harder to sell than, than selling 65 million in a big corporate. I'm, I know I'm putting it a little bit black and white. I I know, eh? but that's for me is also a very important one because yes. I like people who like to reinvent themselves after three, four, five years. If I see that they're doing the same circus trick for 20 years mm-hmm. and then they claim to be successful mm-hmm. doing that circus trick, trick in another company, mm-hmm. in another industry, and they, they think they will be successful, Mm-hmm. I believe it's BS. I rather have people who can start the day, look at beginner's eyes, and at the same time having their expertise and having an open mind to challenge that. You mm-hmm. understand? Yes, Be- absolutely. Because I, I see certain people who were 
I, and especially I, I saw that with a lot of founders who then they call me, yeah, we have somebody from Oracle. Yes. Uh, he's going to be, or she is going to be, oh, Peter, it's going to be amazing six yes. months later. And yeah, we fired him, her. Why? Yes. It, it, yeah, we missed some do it, getting up your sleeves mentality, Peter. Yeah. 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 And I know, and this is the difference between, yeah, the things that you're saying, that growth mindset mm-hmm. and having settle in. So staying in your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So 100%. that's also that's all that's also for me a very very important one. Hundred percent, absolutely. And this is where I think uh, good interviewing—it's a skill we don't talk about enough. It's it is a skill. It's not just a conversation. It is a very technical skill. So I'll give you a, a slightly different. Uh, uh, viewpoint. When I first left Microsoft, I had been at Microsoft for almost 12 years. And um, when I went out in the market, I was given a lot of rejections and a lot of feedback that you're a one trick pony. Um, but I felt that those interviews were so stupid and were not interviews at all. It was basically someone judging me on my resume, right? Ask me a question. Um, a, some, a person who is willing to leave their country and learn how to live in a completely different culture all on their own, a person that has 30 different hobbies going on, has run their own nonprofit before they get to the age of 30, um, you can't just look at the fact that they were at Microsoft for 12 years and discard them as, oh, you know, you don't have a growth mindset, Right. And I think a lot of startup founders are also really guilty of that. They think that uh, unless you have been at a startup, you are incapable. And all those idiots in corporate America are just that. They're big, fat, and lazy, right? That's where my ask is to anyone who is interviewing, do your fucking job. Run the interview process. If you are not preparing for 20 minutes before an interview writing down the specific questions three levels deep, just like, you know, we do the sales call scripts where you have three levels of discovery questions. You need Mm -hmm. the same kind of rigor in order to be able to conduct a hopefully minimally biased interview. Uh, If all you're going to do is bring your judgment into the interview Mm -hmm. and then look for confirmations of your judgment, Let's not pretend. Let's just hire people based on what their LinkedIn profile says and not bother with all this interview nonsense, right? So this is a, an area I completely agree with you. You have to test for growth mindset, but test for it. Ask yeah. questions. The number of interviewers, by the way, when I was looking for jobs after Microsoft, I decided I was given four offers, one from Amazon, one from uh, Google, one from Facebook, and one was another company that I decided to take. Uh, It had the least pay, but I enjoyed the interview process. Every other interview process, I was interviewing the interviewers as much as they were interviewing me. And I was like, wow, I don't want to work with these people. They're not asking intelligent questions. They're asking biased questions. They are then asking follow-up questions that further confirm their bias. They've clearly not been trained to interview people, and therefore I'm not interested. That's amazing. I see the hour is round. One final question, Mona, because otherwise it would be too abrupt. Within 10 years, who is Mona? Mm. Within 10 years, who is Mona? Mona is a person who is uh, impeccable in her words, um, spends 80% of her time building and creating, um, and is actively giving back to her community and supporting women and minorities in the tech field. Beautiful. Thank you. Mona, I have to say, I really enjoyed our conversation. I had a feeling this was just part one. I wish you all the best with Falcon. And in Belgium, there is at least one fan in Falcon, thanks to you. And um, thank you for the great conversation, Mona. I wish you all the best, all the luck, all the love. 
and uh, I think you're. A, I find that you're a beautiful soul within yeah. the within the sales industry, and it's nice to see a real human female leader standing up and kicking ass. Thank you so much, Peter. This was such a joy. I just loved this conversation. It was like talking to an old friend. Thank you. Hey, it's Peter here. Thanks a lot for listening to What's on Your Mind. Looking forward to your opinions and comments. And don't forget to subscribe on psgrow.com and leave your email address to stay tuned for future episodes. Bye.